I'm going to try to stay calm and just get this out, no matter what. I don't know if it'll reach anyone, but I have to try to get my story out there while I still can. My name is Brad Symington. For the past few years, I've lived my life as something of a rambling man, moving from city to city, following the freeways, never settling in any one place for too long. I bought a combi van, cheap, at a police auction shortly after my 19th birthday, and I've never looked back. I don't shower as much as I'd like to, and I work wherever they'll take a young, able body who won't ask many questions. So I've rarely had to settle in one place for longer than a week. I grew up in the town of Springfield, Illinois, and something about that place just never sat right with me. After all these years, I've still never worked out how to explain it exactly. It's something in the way people talk, the jokes they tell, how inconsequential time can feel in a town like that. I aged, but somehow my father never did. He simply grew angrier and stupider. His hair never grayed, and although he drank every day, he never put on any weight. He never lost any either. He seemed to be in a state of stasis. There were other issues, strange problems that no one else seemed to recognize. But I've left now and I've never looked back. In the years that have followed, I've been to Springfields all over the country. Not everywhere I've stopped in was a Springfield, but it's the Springfields that I'm most drawn to. It's in Springfields that I've had my worst fights, my strongest moments of clarity, the most intense of my brief friendships and relationships. I lost my virginity in Springfield, Missouri, just a month after I set out. Her name was Delilah, and she asked if she could come with me the rest of the way. I didn't yet know what the rest of the way was, but I said sure, and she ended up hopping out in another Springfield, this time in South Dakota. I don't know who or what she left behind exactly. I remember very clearly how she told me she'd found the right one. There was a sparkle in her eye, but it wasn't necessarily one of joy or fear. It was just the truth for her. She had found the right one. I didn't understand it at the time, but I certainly do now. It took me years to find the Springfield that felt like my Springfield. Honestly, I didn't even realize that this was the quest that I was on until it ended. I got beaten half to death outside a bar in Springfield, Nebraska, over a political argument of all things. Not about the modern American political situation, though. It was an argument about old Prime Ministers of England. While I was in Springfield, Idaho, all anyone would talk about was a man who had died trying to jump a ravine on a skateboard, struck by some kind of hyper-specific lunacy. In the former mining town of Springfield, California, I attended a meeting where a travelling showman convinced the town's tiny population that a monorail would lead to an economic boom. I saw a headline about a monorail accident a full year later and refused to read the article. I arrived here in my Springfield three weeks ago after years on the road. I think I knew I was in the right place finally because my reliable combi van finally died here in this town within minutes of crossing the border. But this, uh, this Springfield was not on my map. I've looked into it and there's little record anywhere of Springfield, Texas. Or at least not the version of Springfield, Texas that I've found. There have been two Springfields in Texas historically. 
the first now stands as Fort Parker State Park, and according to Wikipedia at least, the town of Springfield is a tiny rural community with a population of just 30 back in 2000. There's not much record of it beyond that, but that's certainly not where I found myself. I don't know how to account for the town I'm in right now as I dictate this. The population is clearly in the thousands. The local businesses seem to thrive with very little export. The comic clown on the television is treated like a celebrity, but I saw him stub a cigarette out into a sandwich at the local diner like he was a nobody. I don't know how to explain the pull this town has had on me. It feels like home, not in that I feel welcome here or that I feel safe. But the one certainty that I'm struck with, the one certainty that I've carried with me since I crossed over the border is that this is the town that I would die in. I've come to know the people of this town surprisingly well in my short time here. There are a few core players that things seem to revolve around. I befriended a local layabout, a sad, balding man in a tavern one night, but it was clear that I was just a stopgap for him on whatever mischief he'd recently found himself caught up in. A reptilian senior offered me a literal dime one night in exchange for planting my fingerprints on a still warm pistol. I later found out that that doddering maniac was the owner of the local nuclear power plant which somehow powers the entire town. Things are off in this Springfield. There's a tinge to the skin of its inhabitants as though jaundice is setting in. Everyone does their food shopping at a single exorbitantly priced convenience store which is run by a man doing what is very clearly an imitation of an Indian accent. And I don't know how to put this, but the town's geography repeatedly changes and shifts. Things are not where they once were on a day-to-day -day basis. I've had no trouble getting work, there's a wealth of opportunities, but the businesses shift and move, and whenever I've tried to re return to find the building that I was working in the previous day, often it will now be something else, and I can't account for this. Perhaps I should have been more scared by these shifts and these changes. If I'm being completely honest though, it never registered with me as being wrong until this very moment. But other things about this town struck me as malevolent from the very beginning. There is a sickness in Springfield and it, it calls to me. Perhaps I should have wanted to leave the moment I started to smell it in the air, but I didn't. When I heard a scratch-voiced man howling over the local radio one night, saying that he was seeking to fund locking an infant into something that he called the Monroe Box. I know I should have flinched, but I didn't. The fact that most of the people here seem to be missing a finger upset me at first, but I shrugged and somehow justified it to myself. It's like the water is just slightly poisoned here and the changes have come so gradually that no one even noticed. Yesterday though, I believe I found the source of the town's sickness. I was hauled into the town jail on a thin pretext, one not worth getting into. Suffice it to say that I was just happy to have someone to sleep that night. The town jail is set up so that once you're in a cell you can't see the other cells. Or at least it was on the night I spent there, although I can't say for sure that that's always the case. I was looking forward to a good rest, but in the cell next to me, all night, 
I could hear muttering and faint laughter, and at one point, what sounded like pneumatic pistons, followed by the hard crunch of a body against the ceiling. The next morning, we were both let out of our cells. I opened my neighbor's cell first, giving him strict instructions not to return to somewhere called Death Mountain. I watched him from behind as he left the precinct, walking his way to processing. He was a man of average height and build, but still very different from the other people in the town. His skin was a pale green, the color of a mint-flavored ice cream, and even from the distance between us, I could see that it was flaky on top of his bald scalp. The man wore a pair of goggles and clunked his way through the station in big metal shoes that surely the officers in charge shouldn't have allowed him to take into the cell with him. I tried to ask the officer for information, but the poor sign man unlocking my cell shook his head and told me to mind my own business. Already, though, I knew that I must follow this man. I collected my goods and chattels as swiftly as I could. There wasn't much, thankfully, and ran from the precinct. I just spot the man waiting for a bus. This struck me as odd, perverse even. To see a man like this waiting for a bus like a regular person... I jogged to the stop just in time to get on the same bus as my target, and as he got on before me, he checked with the driver to make sure that the bus would stop at the base of Death Mountain. In my time in Springfield, I'd spied no such mountain, but I did not put it past the town that such a thing might materialize in some dark corner of the map. I followed my quarry and got off at the same stop as him, keeping my distance as he ascended the path up the mountain. I can't say for sure why my heart was so set on following this man, but I know that I did so with no doubt, no questioning or second guessing. This was the path I had been set on to see through. It was a long walk and I had to keep my distance from the man who would occasionally stop to rub his hands together and softly giggle and mutter. I must have followed him for an hour, an hour and a half. Honestly, it could have been longer. His lab was a monolith etched into the side of Death Mountain. I worried at how I would follow him in, but there was nothing special or secure about the entrance. Two giant wooden doors, complete with a fanciful, bless this mess doormat. I kept my distance, slipping in quietly a full minute after the man had entered. Immediately inside, I encountered yet another perversion, a trophy cabinet filled with high school ribbons and certificates, Photos of the man in front of what I suppose must have been his inventions. His diplomas, doctorates in physics, biochemistry, and of all things philosophy. He scratched out his first name on all of them, and all that remained was his title. Dr. Colossus. My head is fuzzy now on some of the details. I felt guided through his lab by forces unseen. Strangely indifferent to the horrors I witnessed behind glass, splattered across tables, etched into the walls of empty rooms. I remember a chamber with a man-bee hybrid that screamed at me in Spanish. Another door was simply labelled Mole Man. I remember seeing a man around town a few days earlier, walking around Springfield's central promenade, asking if anyone had seen someone named Norman. I am now confident that I know what happened to Norman and I dare not speak it. I thought back to what I'd heard on the radio, the news of the Monroe box, and 
again, it didn't wash over me how horrifying it was to have these terrors in such plain sight in this cursed town. It's only now as I feel my own doom approaching that I can even begin to grasp what's happening in this town, what all of this adds up to. Eventually, I came upon a central chamber, an enormous echoing room that I had to tiptoe around. Dr. Colossus was in there conspiring with a collaborator on a project. I managed to hide, or so I thought, and I heard him unspool the specifics of his plan to the other man, who he referred to as Frank. The other man was largely quiet. What little he did say was impaired by an aggressive speech impediment, but Colossus was glad to unfurl his plan slowly, methodically. I was there for a full half hour before a distant door opened and a new member of their party announced themselves in a voice that sounded all of 15. Dr. Tung has arrived. Incredibly, Dr. Colossus restarted his entire description. He didn't sum up or fill in, he simply started again, repeating his spiel word for word, explaining absolutely and exactly his plan to flip two universes in on themselves so that they would run together like two omelettes in a pan. I would say that the chaos he envisioned was indescribable, but describe it he did. He explained how a plan like this was only possible in a town like Springfield, one fostered from the beginning as a testing ground for such ideas. Springfield existed on a rubber band, he said, that would always snap back into place no matter how hard you pulled it. But he intended to twist and pull that band to see what happened when it broke. Through his experiments, he said, multiple instances of the town would merge together. The residents would exist simultaneously across multiple time frames, as themselves and sometimes as other people, and would be corrupted and changed at Colossus's will. He laughed and he laughed. He promised that Springfield was just a test site, that soon the world would know his name and would scrawl it into the dead earth. Frank and Tung, I believe, were deeper under his spell than even I have been. Dr. Colossus has cast a pall over this town, across multiple versions of this town, coexisting, each one universe apart. He intends to smush them together, to flip them like a pan full of broken eggs. He calls it Operation Knife Point. He knew I was there the entire time. He wanted me to hear what he had to say. He wanted me to get this out, and I have no control over this recording, I now realize. I didn't, I didn't know this had been the case, but it is. I've barricaded myself into a wing of his lab, but only because he let me. We will know his dominion. We will pledge ourselves to his divine vision. We will allow him to scramble the world. He is so firmly in my head now, so entrenched. We are all rank amateurs compared to Dr. Colossus. <laughs>